This episode contains descriptions of self-harm, mental illness, and medical trauma. If you are a survivor yourself, or if these topics have the potential to trigger you, please proceed with caution. Previously on Gooned. Straight Incorporated is a drug treatment program for children from 12 to 22. We had an apartment, a two-bedroom apartment. We had 17 people living in the two-bedroom apartment. Oh my, Um, like 17 people from straight? Yes. Although there are qualified professionals on hand, most of the drug therapy is conducted by other kids at different stages in the program. I don't think that there's these abusive rehabs like that now anymore with these kids, is there? How could they be abusing these kids in these rehabs? Welcome back to Gooned, a podcast about the troubled teen industry. In today's episode, we're following the money. The TTI is a multi-billion dollar industry whose funding is nearly untraceable by design and comes from a multitude of sources, both private and public. Tracking where this money comes from and whose pockets it lines is crucial to understand how an industry built around victimizing the vulnerable has continued to thrive for so long. So we typically, a lot of our folks are paying out of pocket. We can try to bill your insurance depends on carrier what gets covered it can range on our most successful instances we can get 20 percent of tuition either reimbursed or covered that's a sliding scale and 20 percent is not the expectation i kind of tell my parents when dealing with insurance that you know plan to pay out of pocket this is an admissions representative for a residential treatment facility in utah he thinks he's talking to nancy my fictional alter ego from episode one whose 16-year-old daughter, Ella, is struggling with depression and isolation. Posing as Nancy, I told the representative that my husband lives in a wealthy area of California and makes good money as a pharmacy rep, so we were prepared to pay out of pocket and would forego dealing with health insurance for Ella's time in the program. And we are going to fight for every dollar. Our girls are here for about a year, and the tuition is at $470 per day. He quotes me $470 per day for one calendar year of tuition, which comes out to over $170,000 per year, easily double to triple the cost of a year of college in the U.S. And this particular therapeutic boarding school isn't even close to the most expensive TTI program out there. Estimates given to Nancy for therapeutic programs, both wilderness and boarding school, ranged anywhere from $400 to $800 per day. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Because of the industry's lack of transparency, statistics regarding how many kids are in TTI facilities vary widely, but the accepted number is 120,000 to 200,000 kids in programs across the country at any given time. Most programs require parents to commit to paying tuition out of pocket, regardless of whether they plan to go through insurance or seek reimbursement. If we take the least expensive estimate of $400 daily tuition and the lowest estimate of 120,000 kids, this means that from out-of-pocket tuition alone, the industry is bringing in nearly $20 billion annually. Now, of course, it's more complicated than that. But even that simple initial calculation from the lowest end of possible estimates reveals the tip of a gargantuan iceberg. The representative, we'll call him Ryan, told Nancy that Ella would likely spend one year in the program. But as we saw in previous episodes, this is rarely the case. 
most students stay much longer than initial estimates. I entered the industry after a suicide attempt. Like, my parents were trying to get the insurance agencies to pay for it because they're like, my child literally, like, was going to die and the insurance agencies wouldn't pay for it. Jamie's parents sent them to wilderness after a suicide attempt as a young teenager. Jamie spent about two and a half years in TTI programs, which, even for affluent families, is a significant chunk of change. Insurance companies are very reluctant to pay for these facilities. Sometimes what ends up happening is that a parent will send their kid away thinking the insurance will pay for it, but then the insurance won't pay for it. Desperate to get Jamie care and either unaware of or unwilling to explore outpatient and community-based options, they did it anyway. And they're already so roped into the system that the parents end up spending all of their savings, like the child's college fund, stuff like that, on the treatment facilities. Combined with transport fees, families who send their kids away can easily end up spending more than $200,000 per year. And weaponization of the level system means that many kids are kept significantly longer than they or their parents had bargained for. It's not just like people going in thinking that like insurance will pay for things. It's also time getting tacked on to the end. It's extremely common for a facility to say like, oh, your child will like be here for probably six months. And then it's like almost never going to actually be six months. They'll find a problem that isn't there and tell the parents, actually, we desperately need to keep your kid for a few more months. That's another way that they end up like squeezing a lot more money out of parents. Out-of-pocket tuition from parents like Nancy is not even where the lion's share of the profit for most facilities comes from. Some student stays are subsidized by the state, and sometimes tuition is covered by insurance, especially Medicaid. How is it justified to insurance companies, even if a kid doesn't qualify for a diagnosis. I've seen lots of therapists just slap diagnoses on kids. Survivor Casey, who we heard from in episode four, is now a therapist himself and knows a thing or two about insurance. Maybe you have a kid who has anger outbursts every now and then. Just slap a oppositional defiance disorder, conduct disorder, um, intermittent explosive disorder. Oh, your, your kid is sad slap some major depressive disorder on there. In order for most plans to cover mental health treatment, the patient must have a professional diagnosis. While most kids in the TTI have been diagnosed prior to treatment, TTI facilities also provide screening and testing. Many survivors I talked to were labeled with and medicated for diagnoses that they later found out were not correct. You know, they're not doing their due diligence. They're acting unethically. I was on 40 milligrams of Prozac and then, like, however much Concerta or whatever. ODD, or Oppositional Defiance Disorder, is one of the more common diagnoses tacked onto kids for insurance purposes. I don't think it was, like, the right dosage, though. And then I was prescribed Wellbutrin. They were like, this is Wellbutrin, um, you have depression, And this will help you with your depression. But it really made me kind of psychotic at the time. Lily, who was first sent to wilderness and then to a therapeutic boarding school in the late 2000s, remembers being diagnosed with a laundry list of mental illnesses and medicated improperly. It really made me very deranged. I remember very distinctly, like, I accidentally cut myself in the shower. And then I started 
painting with my blood on the shower wall. (laughs) Yeah, just like weird stuff like that. One of those diagnoses was ODD. I was like diagnosed with ODD, which is obstinate defiant disorder, which is basically like not respecting authority and like, I don't know if I actually have that, but like they've diagnosed like a lot of kids with that. Lily has since discovered that ODD was an incorrect diagnosis, likely used to justify their program to insurance and for state subsidies. When insurance does cover tuition, it pays out even more in coverage than parents who opt for private pay. Let's take, for example, Sequel Youth and Family Services, one of the largest youth facility operators in the United States. According to the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program, Sequel regularly brings in upwards of $200 million per year from its schools, 90% of which came from Medicaid and Medicare in 2017, with 500 additional federal, state, and local programs paying $800 per day per student. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, per Section 1905A16 and Section 1905H of the Social Security Act, provide, quote, Medicaid-covered inpatient psychiatric services in a psychiatric residential treatment facility to people under the age of 21. In a sort of social stratification, facilities with majority Medicaid students are thought to be less desirable, with even more decrepit facilities and chronic understaffing. An investigation into one such facility by the ADAP found, quote, broken doors, missing floor tiles, blood smeared on the walls, and thin mattresses laid on top of concrete platforms, end quote. If someone is in a financial position to choose their own facility, they're not going to come to one whose funding comes from the taxpayer. It is estimated that $23 billion of public funds are used to place youth in congregate care every year. Though many families that opt for the TTI are well-resourced or wealthy, or at least somewhat able to spring for the cost, the industry also sinks its teeth into the family court and juvenile justice systems, victimizing those whose families are poor, absent, or deemed unfit. The state actually paid for my stay at the residential treatment center, I think. My dad wrote this entire manifesto and it was pretty bad, did not put me in the best light but like he had to write this huge manifesto about my behavioral problems to like get as much money from the state as they could. The TTI taps into funds from agencies like the Administration for Children and Families, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services to house foster kids, kids placed by the juvenile justice system, and other wards of the state. They offer a place to stay for the state's most troubled wards, who often have nowhere else to go. Lily isn't sure what state program or agency subsidized their time in the TTI, only that their father wrote a scathing letter about Lily's behavior to get as much money as he could to cover the dizzying cost of tuition. There are an estimated 5,000 TTI programs in the United States, a number that reflects individual programs and schools. But these programs are owned, operated, and backed by larger entities. The industry is excellent at covering its tracks and avoiding liability. TTI programs, facilities, and schools can be public, meaning they're owned by the states in which they are located, or private, meaning they're owned by private providers, equity firms, or shareholders, and may also be publicly traded. Generally, You can avoid personal liability by doing things through a corporation. 
For example, if you take out a mortgage and don't make your payments, the lender can take your house and sue you personally. But if you form a corporation to take out that mortgage and the corporation stops paying, the lender will sue the corporation, not you. So individuals doing business will generally want to form a corporate entity to protect themselves. But after organizing the corporation, there are still additional ways to shield yourself from liability, or at least hide from visibility. If you have enough money to conduct your business, you can form a private corporation and fly under the radar. But if you also want to use other people's money to conduct your operations, then you'll likely need to sell a part of your company to others to get that money. If you have a small number of investors, then you can raise money in a securities offering to a few investors and be a private, for-profit company. But if you need to raise money from more than, say, 35 investors, then you may need to go public, which would be subjecting yourself to regulation by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Public companies need to file reports when there are material developments, which invites prying eyes into a program's operations, so many TTI facilities are private corporations instead. We'll start with one such private operator, SQL Youth and Family Services. Facilities operated by companies like SQL protect themselves from liability and bad press by conducting their business as a corporation, then creating a network of smaller programs with different names, which are each registered as their own nonprofit or LLC. These are the individual schools and programs that make up the troubled teen industry. The facilities keep anywhere from 30 to 60 days of operational cash readily available and transfer the rest up to the larger for-profit company, where the funds are protected. Meanwhile, they're providing their services under the name of the school or program itself. In addition to the private funds they receive, companies like SQL also benefit from hundreds of millions of dollars of government funding and rely on the government to fill many of their beds with foster youth and juvenile offenders. The buildings and land upon which TTI facilities house their students are owned by these smaller individual programs. If and when bad press comes around, it's easy to simply pick up and blow dodge, restarting a new facility in another location with a different name, often transferring over the same staff. The house that I was at has closed, but it was bought by the parent company of the parent company and rebranded and still owned by the same people. The actual house opened in 2015 and closed in 2018 after this came out, but actually just kind of got rebranded. Chris, who talked about the level system in episode three, spent 13 months at a residential treatment facility in Utah. He remembers that after the closure of the facility following abuse allegations, it simply rebranded and reopened under the same ownership. A dedicated internet sleuth can find public records and leaked documents showing many TTI programs doing this filing to operate under new names with the same ownership and often the same staff. If the corporate entity has any liabilities or too much media attention, those things stay with the abandoned corporation. The next school that's opened isn't associated with the scandals, and its individuals and private equity stockholders escape with no personal liability. There's a lot of, like, really shady dealings, and the people who are figureheads in the system, like, know how to work the system. And they will find a loophole. And even the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Licensing, has a lot of trouble actually enforcing these regulations. Like, we're seeing kids die in programs. People are, are dying in these facilities, and they're still open. Corporations offer shares to investors to purchase in order to earn from the company's profits. 
being profit-driven leads to prioritizing shareholders and the bottom line at the expense of the safety and well-being of children in their care and the staff they employ. In 2021, Brian Blum, the former chief financial officer of Copper Hills Youth Center, a universal health services facility, spoke out to the media when he realized that the school was fabricating records of competitors' spending to compel him to cut their costs. He detailed dangerous corner-cutting behind the scenes and the various ways that he was compelled to cut costs, compromising students' well-being. Brian also discovered that Copper Hills had two tax IDs. Because some states will only refer their wards to nonprofit programs, the for-profit school had established an additional registration as a nonprofit organization, allowing them to take in kids from other states that didn't have the resources or willingness to accommodate them. They were a nonprofit when it benefited them, and a for-profit when it didn't. James Hindman, who founded the for-profit juvenile corrections company that eventually became Sequel, described the model of for-profit care which he pioneered in an article for the Des Moines Register. Quote, Our profit comes from the ability to run better than the state. We do not pay the fringe benefits. We do not give vacation time. We do not give the sick leave a state employee gets. End quote. These nonprofits are housing the wards that states across the U.S. couldn't afford to all while turning a profit. That means cutting some corners. They have very high turnover rates because they treat their staff like utter crap. Charlie, the former staff member at a therapeutic boarding school in Utah, who we heard from in Episode 3, remembers cost-cutting measures when it came to facility maintenance that compromised student and staff safety. When I was working as a house manager, I was on call. So I was the person that they call for any sort of emergency. And I was on the phone with one of my coworkers. She had called me because one of our patients was not responding in a complete dissociative state. And she ended up kicking her leg through a six foot window while the staff was on the phone with me. And I just heard her literally take a shard of glass and cut her arm open. And I sprinted out that door and I ran there and the entire six-foot window was completely shattered in a million little pieces. And the solution was to take the glass pane out and then seal it with a trash bag and some Gorilla tape. And I don't think that that window had gotten replaced until about three months later. The facilities were dilapidated and dangerous conditions were ignored for months at a time. Fixes deemed too expensive were simply neglected, leaving windows without glass and transport vehicles without seatbelts. We had super outdated cars. There was one van that did not have a working seatbelt in the passenger seat, which I had heard had been reported multiple times. And by the time I left, it was still there. Madison, another former staff member from Episode 3, recalls similar dangerous conditions where she worked. In the name of saving money, the facility neglected repairs and updates, even those that threatened students' lives. Our facility was probably built in, I would guess, like the 90s. And just, it looked worn down for each kid, 100 students at any given time, paying $12,000 a month. The couches we had were broken, like there was a beam in the couch, like kind of crossways that was broken and sticking out of the couch. 
we were supposed to get new couches. We didn't even get new ones. We just got ones from a different area in the facilities brought up to our area. They were horrible. They had like wooden edges. So like instead of like a cushioned thing on the side, it was just wood. At the time that Madison was employed, tuition ran about $400 per day. I think that would be $1.2 million a month, wouldn't it? Because if it's 100 students and they're each paying 12000 that's $1.2 million a month. Despite raking in such a sum, the program cut as many corners as it could. And it wasn't just neglecting the facilities that may have propped up the company's bottom line, but also underpaying, overworking, and failing to properly train its staff. Originally, I had found out about it just through Indeed, like through an Indeed ad. I had just moved here. I was new to the area. I didn't really know many places, and I was just trying to get back on my feet. And so I was looking for any job that was, you know, paying more than $7 an hour because that was minimum wage here. I ended up finding there they were offering like starting out at $15 an hour, which is a lot of money for the area. I was paid $15 an hour. That was starting pay. I worked on average about 30 hours a week. Not only paying employees, but recruiting them costs money. The staff I spoke to found out about the job through word of mouth or free job posting websites like Indeed.com. The industry is happy to spend money on promoting themselves to people who pay them, but skimps on recruiting people who need to be paid. When Charlie and Madison were hired, the minimum wage in Utah was $7.25, and they were enticed by higher pay. Charlie was hired when she was 19, and Madison when she was 22. Fresh out of school and eager to start any kind of paid work, they fell hook, line, and sinker for the pitch. But right from the interview, red flags were raised. When I was first hired, the head over the school was talking to me and I said, I have a background in education. He was like, oh, do you want to be a teacher here? And I was like, I don't have any qualifications to be a teacher. There's nothing that would qualify me to be a teacher. (laughs) So no, but thank you. He's like, well, if you want to be a math teacher or a Spanish teacher, just let me know. Before she had even clocked in for her first day, Madison noticed that the program was trying to weasel her into the work of a more qualified, higher-paid position, but without the pay raise and without the necessary qualifications. At her facility, Charlie was also tasked with duties far above her pay grade. I'm not registered medically in any way. I had to administer diabetes medication, insulin, like shots, on a daily basis, two to three times a day. Absolutely everything. Narcotics, controlled substances, or just basic generic medication. Yeah, I was in charge of every single last bit of it. I had constant access to their chart, even as just like a basic staff. I had access to their social security numbers. I had access to literally everything identifying about them as if I was their parent. Charlie was later promoted to house manager, a salaried on-call position that commanded most of her time. But the pay was no better. By the time I was house manager, I was 20. Um, And they knew that they were going to work me overtime. And so they didn't want to pay me for all the overtime hours. So I was put on salary at this point. But calculated out, I was only making $17 an hour. So it was only a $2 raise from introductory line staff to 
all right, now I'm home manager and I'm on call 24 seven. I was working an average of like 60 to 70 hours a week. There was one week that I had literally worked three days back to back shifts. So six shifts in a row, day and night shifts, three days in a row. Young, naive, underpaid and poorly equipped. Madison and Charlie represent much of the day staff at TTI facilities. Survivors, too, remember a lack of qualified professionals like therapists and psychologists at their programs. Of course, hiring fewer experienced and licensed staff members means a lower staffing cost. Different types of licensure require different staff-to-student ratios, so many programs try to meet the requirements for licenses that mandate the smallest number of staff for their student population. But often, they don't even meet those requirements. Understaffing is an acute problem across the industry, but even those facilities that are audited by the state or other bodies evade detection for their understaffing. It was always like we were always short-staffed. We never had enough people actually there. Charlie remembers when her facility was investigated by the state due to an unrelated sexual abuse case. With outside eyes suddenly trained on the program, they scrambled to make it look like they were meeting licensing requirements. They brought in every employee they could, including management, to pose as day staff. So during those days, management would come in and be like acting staff and pretend like they were doing that on a day-to-day basis. When in reality, I think the ratio is one staff for every four girls. And so let's say there's 20 girls in the house. Technically, there should be five staff there. On average, there was maybe two. Occasionally one. Um, They would just straight up fake ratios. So they would straight up fake ratios. Like they would make sure, like they would have clinical therapists or sometimes even the nurses would come in and literally act as staff just for the two hours that the state was there. And the lies that lower level staff were forced to tell did not end there. During one incident with a student, Charlie was thrown into oncoming traffic and broke a bone in her skull. I ended up with a broken occipital bone, permanent brain damage from a concussion because I had been knocked unconscious on the side of the highway from attempting to restrain a girl who was trying to jump in front of semi-trucks. Though she was a salaried employee by this time, having been promoted to house manager, Charlie found that the insurance her facility purported to provide to employees was nowhere to be found. I was completely uninsured but ended up in the hospital seven times throughout my employment. Staff and students were frequently put in dangerous situations, including restraints and other physically violent altercations. But the program provided incorrect insurance information and then delayed providing Charlie with the correct paperwork and details she needed to get covered and be reimbursed. They gave me the wrong information. I'm still paying the bills off. It was about 25 grand in medical expenses. I was never given time off. I was expected to show up. I was in the emergency room until... 7 a.m. the next day, and they expected me to come in the second that I got out of the emergency room because I was scheduled for a shift that next morning. And I actually ended up being late to that shift because I was still trying to get out of the emergency room to get there. They gave me no sort of compensation to take care of myself, to heal from the situation. Finally, deep in medical debt and with a permanent brain injury, Charlie was sent the paperwork she needed to get health insurance. It was a very drawn out process. And so I had gotten employed in March and I requested it in September and then I didn't see it 
I didn't actually see the paperwork until five months after I had actually quit, and it arrived in my mailbox at my house. During the state audit, Charlie was compelled by management to lie about that, too. There were times where I got pulled into an interview with the state, and I straight up lied to the state because I knew there was an administrator with the door cracked sitting right outside the room that I was in talking to them. I was approached by the state after that situation had happened. I had sat in a room with an administrator right outside the door with the door cracked, and the state was asking how the facility had handled my injury and if they had compensated me in any sort of way to cover medical bills or anything like that. And I never felt like I could actually talk to the state. So if they were investigating situations, I had no way to actually tell them what was going on because I was monitored by management. If employees were to tell the truth about understaffing, poor training, being uninsured, and corner cutting, well, they were out of a job. There was one staff member that kind of had told the truth, and she got fired on the spot. Both Madison and Charlie eventually quit their jobs in the TTI. Charlie's last straw was when the program wouldn't schedule her shifts to accommodate chemotherapy for her breast cancer. For Madison, it was a particularly brutal floor technique restraint that made her question the ethics of her job, the program, and the industry at large. Finally, having seen it from the inside, they had both become disillusioned. They're scared of regulation. So this is not an accrediting body. The programs pay to be a part of it. Chris is talking about NATSAP, a trade organization of which most TTI programs are members. They get a distinction for the amount of data they share about their patients. And basically, it's just everybody patting each other on the back. NATSAP is arguably the key player in lobbying, representation, resource sharing, and legitimizing the industry. Charlie and Madison were cogs in the machine, but NATSAP is the machine. I'm actually a student. Um, I'm a grad student at USC, um, and I want to go into some field of residential care. And I am not a grad student at USC, or anywhere, actually, and I'm not going into the field of residential care. After hearing horror stories from survivors and former staff members alike, I wanted to understand the culture of those deeply embedded in this industry, those who are at the helm not only of the programs themselves, but of the system. I wanted to get on the inside. Next time on Gund, I will go inside the belly of this beast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gund. For exclusive bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and further reading, head to patreon.com slash goondpodcast. Remember to rate, review, and follow Gund wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out goondpodcast.com for more information. Gund is researched, reported, and edited by me, Emma Lehman. Original music for the show was created by Olivia Springberg. Original artwork was created by Sam Doe. Sarah Lukowski and Avery Erskine copy-edited and consulted on the show. Thank you to all of the amazing survivors, activists, researchers, former staff, families, experts, and everyone else who lent their stories to this podcast, both anonymous and otherwise.